Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We'll carry on with session two. Hello again. So we had started, we had started in the first session talking about the tabernacle, and we took the tabernacle as a whole. Um, and then we said we're going to take the Sunday Theotokei, we're going to take the first six parts as like our basis. Um, <clears throat> so, like I had said we would take two items per talk, but uh, since like there was an introduction, like, uh, I, like in the first part and laying down the foundation of like what's the tabernacle about and stuff, uh, hopefully I'm going to try to squeeze in like the next three items, so parts two, three, four. I'm going to try to squeeze them in the time frame that we have. But please feel free if, if it's like too much or too heavy or you guys are starting to like lose focus, just like signal me down and be like, you know what, let's just <laughs> do it tomorrow or, or we'll see. And so <clears throat> part two of the Sunday Teotokaya talks about the Ark. So if you guys remember when we talked about the Ark, it's the box that's, it, that's placed in the Holy of Holies. And in that box, there's three items. There's the Tablets of the Covenant that had the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. It has the rod of Aaron and it has the golden pot that had the manna. This is the Ark. So this part two of the Theotokia talks about the Ark. So we're gonna, like we did with the first part, we're gonna read through it. And then we're gonna select three paragraphs, three of the paragraphs uh, to meditate on and to gain uh, spiritual benefit for our lives. So it says the Ark overlaid round about with gold that was made with wood that would not decay. It foretold the sign of God the Word who became man without separation. One nature out of two, a holy divinity, coessential with the Father and incorruptible. A holy humanity begotten without seed, coessential with us according to the economy. This which he has taken from you, O undefiled, he made one with him as a hypostasis. And then we said this is the first, uh, the first part of the course or the refrain and then it says all the souls together of the children of Israel brought offerings unto the tabernacle of the Lord gold and silver and precious stone purple and scarlet and fine linen and they made an ark of wood that would not decay overlaid with gold within and without you too O Mary are clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without for you have brought unto God your son many people through your purity and then we have the second part of the chorus Everyone ready? So the first, the first paragraph I want to take for meditation is actually the first paragraph. It says, The ark overlaid round about with gold that was made with wood that would not decay. And then in the following paragraphs, you see that the, that the symbolism that was made is the wood represents Christ's humanity and the gold that overlaid it was his divinity. This is the analogy that the church has made in, in explaining the ark. But what I want to bring your attention to is that the wood, the wood, which is symbolic of his humanity and his humanity resembled us in everything. It said the wood would not decay. And this points to us when we're thinking of something that does not decay, it points to us to eternal life. That the wood that we carry Although it may temporarily decay, but this is still meant to live forever. The resurrection at the second coming, it's, we're not going to receive some other foreign body. 
this body, this body will rise again and it will never decay. So the wood that will not decay points to us to eternal life and to have that eternal or heavenly mindset. Saint Mary, Saint Mary and her life, her eyes are constantly on the mission. Constantly having that eternal heavenly mindset. And through that mindset, she's able to overcome any tribulations that can come her way. It's very easy for someone at that time who's being accused, let's say, or being looked at weird for being pregnant without marriage. It's very easy for someone like that to lose hope or despair or be like, you know what, forget this. I'm not down anymore. But with so for someone who has the heavenly mindset, well then all of a sudden, every aspect of their lives starts to be put into perspective. Everything in our lives starts to be put into perspective. So from this heavenly mindset that the world that we carry, this body does not decay, I always have my eyes on eternal life. And then, once my eyes are constantly set on eternal life, well then guess what? Everything in my life, I start to weigh it on the scale of eternity. Everything in my life, I start to weigh on the scale of eternity. What does that mean? Back in Montreal, I was, I was in downtown. Me and my wife were going out downtown. So we were going around and we ate dinner and stuff. And then we're coming back. And then coming back from downtown, we have like two highways, like two options of highways to like to come back. So then I remember like, I just because I'm the one driving. So then I asked her, I'm like, which highway should I take? And then she's like, uh, oh, whichever one, like, uh, I think this one's quicker. Or, or she said, whatever, whichever one, it doesn't make a difference. I'm like, okay, whatever. So then I chose one. And then after I chose it, I remembered, I'm like, oh, man, they have construction on this highway. There's going to be traffic. We're going to be delayed by, like, I don't know how much. Right? And then I remember distinctly saying, I'm like, on the scale of eternity, what does it matter? Right? And maybe I said it like half jokingly or whatever, but actually it carries a lot of meaning. Really, on the scale of eternity, what does it matter? And imagine now if we extrapolated this to every single aspect of our lives, what would our lives start to look like? The person who backstabs me and speaks behind my back. On the scale of eternity, what does it matter? The person who hurts me or hurts my family on the scale, I'm not saying it's little, but I'm saying on the scale of eternity, what does it matter? My personal entertainment, my wants, my lusts, my desires, my whatever, uh, buying this, uh, this pair of pants or this dress or going to this movie or eating at this restaurant on the scale of eternity, what does it matter? The question the Christian asks himself all the time. On the scale of eternity, what's, what is going to matter? Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, the moment, the moment we pass on from this life to the next, everything that matters will become very apparent and everything that doesn't matter will also become very apparent. I don't know if you guys have recently been to like a cemetery, not to sound too depressing, but I mean like the cemetery 
gives so much perspective. As you walk, as you walk through a cemetery and you look around at everyone who's there, what are these people stressing about? These people, no one is stressing about the price of gas. No one is stressing about their boss who mistreated them. No one is stressing about the promotion that they didn't get. No one is stressing about... The only thing that matters to these people is how much they loved God. And what did their lives look like? Or what did their relationship with Christ look like while they were here? It's all that mattered. And it's all that matters. The ark overlaid roundabout with good with wood that would not decay. The fact that it would not decay brings our attention to eternal life. And we need to walk our lives having that mindset in every small and every big decision. Because in the same way that I'm, I'm giving you guys the analogy of taking like seemingly big worldly things and asking you guys, well, what does that, what does that matter on the scale of eternity? Well, by the same token, I could take very small spiritual things and weigh those at, on the scale of eternity. When I come home at night and I'm very tired and the decision is to pray or not, or just go to bed, well, now let's weigh that on the scale of eternity and see how much that matters. There's, there, there's, there's rarely a sense of urgency in the spiritual life. If I don't pray tonight, well, whatever, I could pray tomorrow. But on the scale of eternity, that prayer, how much does that matter? What are we today? August 11th? Well, tonight, August 11th, 2018, everyone, when they go back home, they have an opportunity to pray. And that opportunity on August 11th, 2018 will never come back again. So on the scale of eternity, what does your prayer tonight weigh? And to each person and their like personal answer with that. The next, the next paragraph we want to take. Yes. Yeah. She's saying, she's saying the part that's talking about like the wood and how the church resembled it to the humanity of Christ. She's saying, well, this body is going to dispose. So it seems to be like contradictory. And like, like we said, yes, this body will die and will decay, but this body will also rise again from the dead and will continue to live on forever. You understand what I'm saying? So maybe if this, if this let's say if we were to compare it, this body to like wood, well, yes, it will decay like temporarily, but it's long-term like project is that this will last forever. But it's the spirit that lasts, not the body, right? The spirit lasts forever, but at the, at the second coming of Christ, this body will rise again from the dead. No? like issue like there's very very clear scriptural references that talk about the resurrection of the flesh so when Jesus comes in his second coming our, 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 our spirits and our souls and our bodies will all rejoin together 
just like Jesus had a glorified body when he was resurrected and they told him look touch me and give me fish give me food to eat and he ate fish and a piece of honeycomb and when he ate like it didn't like they didn't give it to him and it like went right through him like he wanted to show them I'm not a ghost right but even that didn't convince me like not not convince me but like didn't what made it finally click in my head okay that the heavenly the heavenly are are uh, have have bodies okay it was this and i guess it's different things for different people but have you ever heard of any stories of saints where the saint did something so there's a story for example about um, about he's not canonized the saint yet but um uh, Abuna Andros Samwili. He was uh, he was a monk from Saint Samuel's Monastery. He was blind from the age of two. He lived over a hundred years old, and he was like a, he was such he was so holy that in the latter part of his life, uh, people would constantly see that he was shining. Like in hospital, the doctors and the nurses all attested to the fact that he was. He was shining, like he was glowing, like like Moses when he came down from the mountain, okay? Saint, real saint, and he died. Anyhow, there was people who used to like care for him when he was in hospital in Alexandria. And one night after he passed away, like long after, like a, like a year or two or something after he passed away, the, the woman who was from that family, that like the mother who was that family that was caring for him, she had a dream that Abun Andraus woke her up and told her, don't forget to turn the gas off on the stove next time, huh? Okay? And she said, okay. Like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but in, 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 um, in Egypt, a lot of most stoves, almost all stoves are gas. Uh, our cookers are gas. And usually, like, they don't have, like, underground gas lines. They have, like, big gas tanks. So you have to turn the gas tank on. And sometimes your stove is, like, not of perfect quality. So, uh, like, you, you know, you, you, you have to turn the gas on on the stove and the gas tank on. People generally close, the, they don't leave the gas tank open. They close the gas tank and open it every time they use it because they don't trust the stove, you know? So, he's telling her the gas tank, you have to close it, huh? So she's like, yeah, like she's like, he's telling her like ABCs, you know? So, the next morning, her husband wakes her up and he goes to her, uh, did you forget to close the gas tank last night? She's like, no, why? She goes, go in the kitchen, she goes in the kitchen and it smells, it reeks of gas. So she runs to go turn the gas tank off, and it's off. S sorry, th this was while he was alive. This was, yeah, this was, sorry, this story was while he was alive. So she goes to the hospital the next day, and she goes to him, and she tells him, did you visit us last night? And he tells her, hey, don't forget to turn the gas tank off. The same words that he said to her and the same tone and the same thing he said to her in her dream. So was it a dream or was it real? I don't know. But there was gas leaking and the thing was off. 
You know, how did it get turned off? And if it was off, why was it leaking? Right? With what body did he go and turn that, the gas tank off? Like she saw him turn it off. With what body did he go and turn it off? You know? I'll tell you another story. This story, this is a story from Montreal. This story, okay, like, like will rock your world. <laughs> rock my world in this, right? So my sister was living, uh, when my sister, before she got married a long time ago, she was living with uh, another one of our friends from Montreal, Cindy, Salit, um, downtown, right in front of the hospital. And Cindy's a teacher, and Cindy, like many you know, uh, Egyptian girls, has curly hair, and she would go to this Italian hairdresser to straighten her hair. Great hairdresser, she loved, she loved her, they were great friends. Turns out that the Italian hairdresser's son was not doing very well in school. Cindy's a teacher. She says, I can tutor him. Great. So she would uh, tutor him in their apartment. Mary Lise, my sister, and Cindy's apartment. One day, she's going to pick up, the, the, the hairdresser's going to pick up her son from the apartment. Right when he walked into the apartment, the, the, there was a desk there and a big picture of Pokrolos on the desk. And she was tutoring him there. So she walks in, she walks into the apartment and Cindy goes, we're not quite done, we're almost done the lesson, we just need five minutes. The hairdresser looks and she sees the picture of Pokrolos. Okay, she's Italian, okay? She's Italian, Roman Catholic, has no connection to the Coptic Church. She says, who's that man? Cindy's like, he's Pokey, like, what, what, why? So she finishes the lesson, and as they're walking down, the hairdresser goes, Who? How do you have a picture of that man? And she's like, like he was like our Pope, like before, and now we have another one, and so on. What's like, what's the big deal? She's like, but what's your connection? How do you know him? And like, why do you? What? And and she was like totally like like some like like so shocked. So Cindy's like, I don't understand. Like, what's what, why, why do you know him, <laughs> right? So she tells her the story. She says to her, when she was pregnant with her son, she delivered him like a month or two early or something. And he was a premature and he was in the, in the ICU, in the newborn ICU. And uh, he was doing very poorly. And every, every night, every second night, they call her, come, he's gonna die, you know? So he can die in your arms. She'd run to the hospital and then he'd be okay in this night. They called her, uh, they, she dreamt one night that they were calling her and that she wasn't, she didn't hear the phone. Okay, she, so she's dreaming this in her dream. That they called her and they, that she didn't hear the phone. And they're calling her to tell her that he's gonna die and this time for sure he's gonna die. So come so he can die in your arms. And in her dream, she saw that she didn't answer the phone. So because she didn't answer the phone, a big, tall, big, huge, black a man dressed in black, wearing a big funny hat, walked into the ICU, opened her son's incubator, and took, took him out and carried him like the way he would if he's gonna die, you know? And he put his hand on him 
and he looked like all of this she's seeing from the back and then he looked over like you know and she could see his face and he smiled to her and he put his hand on him and he put him back in the incubator so she understood from that like he was supposed to die but this man did something so he won't die what a, what a weird dream when she woke up she was so shocked she just right away like put her clothes on ran to the hospital right she gets to the hospital like where were you last night we were calling you he was gonna die for sure and then he got better she was sure that Pope Carlos went she didn't know who some guy went she never, she, like, she's Roman Catholic. She has nothing to do with the Coptic Church. Right? So how are these saints doing these things? You know what I mean? They must have, God must allow them temporarily to have some kind of body with which to go and to serve. Right? So in the same fashion, sorry, like a very long-winded uh, interruption. Uh, many stories. Like, and there's many, 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 many other stories, right? <laughs> there's, 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 there's dozens of stories of people who tried to rob uh, 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 St. Philopatir Marcorius' St. Abu Sifin's monastery, and you go and literally beat them up. Beat them up, tie them up. They, they go and find them in the church, tied up. They find the, the robbers tied up in the church and they're like, that guy in the picture, he came out of the picture. He came out of the picture and he beat us up and he tied us and he chained us. Right? But with what body did they do that? Right? With the body. So somebody asked this question to Pope Krolos. With what body does Saint Mina go do miracles? Like how can Saint Mina, your friend, every time somebody comes to Pope Krolos, he says, I'll send you St. Nina. Like he's like little, his little runner boy, you know? I'll send, him, I'll send you St. Nina, right? So with what body does St. Nina do these things? So Pope Corliss answered him, and he told him, the same as the earth is covered in dust, and the same as God took Adam, and from dust he made Adam, he collects the dust and gives it as a body to the saint to go do what he has to do. And so you ask him, what happens to the body after that? says it returns back to dust because it did what it was supposed to do. I don't know if that, for me, that's what sealed the deal that like, like I know, I think of saints as spiritual beings because their bodies are buried on earth or their relics in relic boxes or whatever. You know, like we have a piece of the relic body of St. Moses, right? So when St. Moses appears to somebody or when St. Moses does something, with what body does he do it? I thought it's in our relic box over here, right? God gives him a body to, with which to work with, and then mm. if they do physical things, you know? I don't know if that convinced you or not. But that kind of negates the fact that they're, you only have one body, right? It's, it's not an either or scenario, it's like it's an scenario. Like there's multiple. It's a vehicle, right? But it's your vehicle, yeah. right? Like I have a car, but when I want to come to church, 
like people on my street, we most people like park on the street. So I don't get into any car to drive from home to church. I get into my car, right? But in the resurrection of of uh, in the second resurrection, like I think it will it's our bodies, you know. Um, I was sharing with somebody, I don't know if I remember if it was with you, Mark, or with somebody else, a little interesting tidbit. In Eastern Orthodox iconography, which is very beautiful, uh, when they picture Christ, they picture him without his wounds. Wounds. Because they want, they want to demonstrate, in, I mean, sorry, in the icon of, uh, in the, icon of the, the Revelation, or the icon of Christ of the ages, no in the icon of, of Christ as, as forevermore in heaven, okay? Not because they believe he doesn't have his wounds, because in the Gospel of Matthew it says, look, here are my wounds, put your hand in my finger here, put your hand in my side, and so on, but because they want to show that all of, all of the wounds, all of our wounds are healed. So they picture him without his wounds. We picture him with his wounds, why? Because we're, we say that his wounds, both are beautiful, like, it's not like one is right and one is wrong. They're both beautiful and they're communicating different messages. We picture him with his wounds because we say his wounds are, are the message of his, the testament of his love for us. So that's how we can see physical manifestations of his love for us, right? But if Christ has his wounds in his glorified body, as he showed St. Thomas, then the body that Jesus was resurrected with was his body, not a body. Do you know what I mean? Like it was not a, a random body or a reconstituted body or, you know what I mean? But it was his body which was glorified. So I think it stands to reason that we will also be resurrected in our bodies, but glorified. So Jesus' body, but glorified. You know, he walks through walls and, you know, but he walked on water from before too, so I don't know if that's a fair, <laughs> enough of an Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Um, so this is what we said concerning the first paragraph uh, about the ark overlaid with gold that was made with wood that will not decay so to keep our eyes on eternal life and to always have that eternal mindset and as such having this mindset this is how we conduct ourselves throughout our lives and our decisions are based having that eternal mindset the second paragraph it says you too O Mary are clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without yes This, it, uh, this is from Midnight Praises, the Sunday Midnight Praise. Thank you. No problem. So you two, O Mary, are clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without. One of the most beautiful things about her, like if you, if you see here that it says, okay, well, clothed with the glory of the divinity within, makes sense. I mean, she carried Christ, so clearly. But also without. How is she clothed with the glory of the divinity from without? 
And the idea here is that she is fully consecrated to God in all senses of the term. Whether it be her body, whether it be her clothing, whether it be her mind, whether it be anything about her, she is clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without. And that's the note for our lives. That note of consecrating to God everything. Oftentimes, if you think about what is your goal in the spiritual life, like ask yourselves, what do I want to achieve spiritually? Sometimes some people say, okay, well, if I could get to a point where, you know, like I go to church on a weekly basis, I confess on a monthly basis, and if I pray every morning and every night, and if I read my Bible every day, then I'll consider myself to have made it spiritually. And some people, this is the goal of their lives, and that's it. So, and then they strive to reach a certain point and not move past it. But the idea here is to ask ourselves, what do we want to achieve? We want to be consecrated fully to God. What does that mean? The Archangel Gabriel, when he appeared to St. Mary, he says, Rejoice, O full of grace. Rejoice, O full of grace. What does it mean for someone to be full of grace? Let me, let me take an analogy and suppose that I resemble the heart, the heart to a cup. This heart is filled with stuff that you love. So for example, I love movies. So movies takes up a part of that cup. Uh, I love shopping, so that takes up another part. I love video games, so that takes up another part. I love work, I love family, I love... And all of these things take up little pieces or parts of that heart. Well then, for someone whose heart is filled with the love of a whole bunch of other stuff, it's normal when, you, when they come to start a spiritual life, it's heavy and it's hard and it's tough. Why? Because you're trying to shove something into a cup that's already full. You're trying to shove something into a cup that's already full. But someone who empties his heart from the stuff that is not God, makes room for God to come and fill his heart. And in the ideal world, well then I would empty my heart of everything that is not God, so that God can fill the entire heart. And once God has filled the entire heart, well then I, like Saint Mary, can get the title of full of grace. It means God fills the heart to, its, to the brim and overflows. On a practical sense, it means that imagine we come to a point where our entertainment is found in God. Our joy is found in God. Our happiness is found in God. When we are sad, it's, we, we run to God. And nothing else. Sorry. And nothing else. Suppose that I found everything I ever want or, every need or ever need. I, found it, I find it in Christ and no one else. 
You know when this becomes apparent and also becomes a bit tougher? Is in the middle of a problem. When I'm in the middle of a problem, in the middle of some relationship problem, or in the middle of some catastrophe at work or anywhere, well then, it's very easy for me to find comfort or to cover it up with anything else. Someone who's stressed at work, it's very easy for him to come home and drink his problems away. Someone who's struggling with, in his marriage, it's very easy for him to go out and find someone else and, and have a good time. Right? Patches. We like to patch stuff. But imagine, imagine if in the midst of your toughest times, you stand up with all boldness and tell God, I refuse to get any comfort from anything else in the world other than you. No matter what the circumstances, I want to be full of you. That means in every circumstance, for every condition, concerning every condition, and in all things, I am going to you. You know what's the best example of this from the Bible? The Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman, she went to Christ. And I want, I want to walk you guys through the phases of what she went through. So she comes to Christ and she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. The first step or the first thing Christ does is that he totally ignores her. Doesn't even bother to turn around as if she said nothing. She continues a bit and then she says, Lord, please like have mercy on me. And then his disciples say, um, sorry, can you take care of her? Because she's kind of making a scene and it's kind of getting embarrassing. Like for the disciples, it's not a big deal. They're like, they're like it's sarraf. Like just like do something. Like, you know, whether, whether you want to heal her daughter or you want to dismiss her, you want to whatever, like just do something because like, you know, she's crying out after us and it's like kind of embarrassing. And then he tells his disciples while she's behind, he tells his disciples, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she's behind. So she's hearing this. So first step, she gets ignored. Second step, she indirectly gets the message that he's not there for her. He's not like he's not part of her, like he's not under, sorry, she's not part of his job. And then the last step is that she comes and falls at his feet. And she says, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. And then he gives the last hit and says, it is not good to take what is holy and throw it to the dogs. But what does that entail? Or what is he implying? But what does she say? Lord, even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. After there was no more pride, like if someone, if someone has a, some self-respect or like self-pride or like, I don't know, the perfect word for me is in Arabic like karama. If someone has a, a, like a, a, an inch of karama, after they're ignored the first time, they're like, okay, fine. You don't want to talk to me. That's okay. I'll go find my solution somewhere else. And then, okay, if, if you push through the first layer and then you get like the indirect message, like he's not, okay, fine. Well, you know, I'm not, uh, what am I going to do? You know, like he doesn't want to talk to me. And then even at the third time and she gets destroyed, she still is running after him. Why? Because she's entering with the mindset, there is no one else but him. 
My problem is not going to get solved by anyone but him. He's going to ignore me. Fine. He's going to say he's not here for me. That's fine. Treat me like a dog. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, he's the one who's going to solve my problem. I don't care how silent he is. I don't care how ignoring he is. I don't even care how insulting he may be. I am not going anywhere but him. And then we see Christ take 180 degrees. And he says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Woman, like the connotation, is the same connotation he used at St. Mary at the, at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. When he says, Oh woman, it's like my lady. Elevated her to the highest of terms. And he says, Oh woman, great is your faith. The great, like he praised her faith. His disciples, he didn't pray. He says, Why are you so weak? Why did you fear? Oh, you have little faith. But this woman, he said, Oh woman, great is your faith. And then what did he do? He healed her daughter. Right? Wrong. You know what he did? He wrote her a blank check. He said, Let it be to you as you desire. Let it be to you as you desire. What does that mean? You want the earth to stop turning this way and start turning the other way? Fine. You want, the, you want earth and Venus to be swapped? Fine. Let it be to you as you desire. As if Christ cannot resist that. He cannot resist that. And at the sound of such faith and such persistence and such consecration and dedication that everything is coming from him and I accept nothing from no one else all of a sudden she has found the key to the doors of heaven and all the blessings of heaven pour out can you imagine this is the person who is clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without my goal my goal in my spiritual life is not just to be a nice Christian my goal is that Christ would take possession of every thought, of every breath, of every action, of every move, that He would clothe me within and without. So that I don't need entertainment from TV, social media, I don't need any of this. When I want to get entertained, I go to Christ. When I want to unwind, I go to Christ. When I want to... Whatever it is that I want, not just the needs. Like it's very easy for us to see God as like the answer to our needs, but how many of us look to God as the answer to our wants? To how many of us is God our only desire? Yes, He's our desire. Yes, maybe He's the first desire. But on the side we have desire 2, 3, 4, and 17. I want to come to a point, or we want to come to a point like St. Mary, where Christ is not just number one desire, we want to the only desire after you Lord I don't want anything I don't I don't want anything the person who is clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without and this was more than apparent in the life of Saint Mary the last paragraph is the one right after it for you have brought unto God your son many people through your purity you have brought unto God your son many people through your purity. In Luke chapter 1, 
we have the song of St. Mary, which is like a couple of verses. And besides that, maybe the one or two words she told the angel, and that was about it. She wasn't the sermon giver. She didn't convert 3,000 people with a sermon. She didn't convert an entire city like Jonah did by a sermon. But it says she brought many people through her purity. The preaching with actions and not with words. Like we said in the first session, talk is so cheap. So cheap, it's unbelievable. Through her purity, she has managed to bring people to God. That people can just look at her and all of a sudden they feel, they feel like, I, I want to come to Christ now. Can you imagine? How, efficient, how much more efficient will our service be if we were bringing people to God, not through our visits, not through our phone calls, not through our texts. I'm not saying these things aren't important. But I'm saying, imagine if people just saw us and they saw a purity and it brought people to God. The other example I'm reminded of for this is Lazarus. Lazarus, after he was raised from the dead, that same, I believe it was that same night, Christ went and had dinner at, at their place. And then it says, and Lazarus sat next to Christ. And then it says, like, he didn't speak the entire like, night. Like, there's no record of him saying anything. But then it says, the Jews went out and plotted against Lazarus. Why? Because on account of him, many believed in Christ. He didn't say anything. Like, the poor man is just sitting quietly at dinner. But why, why, are they, why do they want to kill him? Because they saw in him that Christ rose him from the dead. And that alone was enough. When people see a change in our lives, then they will question. Then they will, they will ask. And they will believe. I guarantee you they will believe. In my personal life, one of the greatest proofs of God's existence, and all of this is real, is when I see someone who lived so far from church and without any servant doing anything, he came back. And he came back stronger than, than, than me who was born and raised in church. By what power does this person come back to Christ? What is it, like let's be honest, between you and me, what is it that we have to sell? What's the selling point of Christianity? Please come carry a cross. Please come deny yourself. Please come fasting is great. We, <laughs> we have no selling point. What, what makes Christianity so real and, like, and makes it so like correct? and makes it the truth is that our fathers the apostles converted the world without any selling point and those who believe died those who, who decide to follow they died this is what we had to sell to the world please come die you don't come people don't come and do this if they're not convinced People don't come 
people don't follow doctrines, they don't follow theologies. If, sorry, I'm like losing my words. You, people will not come to Christ because of what they're going to get out of it. You're going to come to Christ because He is the truth. What do we have to gain? We have nothing to gain. But through our purity, or through God's purity in us, working in us, the world will be changed. That person that we think is hopeless, that person that we think can never come to Christ, he will come to Christ when he sees how Christ has changed your life, and how Christ has changed my life. I pray for us, like my understanding is most of you are servants, is that we start to carry this burden. And like I'm saying it with like a very heavy and very cut heart because I say it to myself before anyone, that our spiritual lives and our purity of heart and our striving in the spiritual life is not just the responsibility we have towards our soul. This is a responsibility we have towards the world. We have a responsibility before God and before the world to shine. Because if we don't, they will perish, but their blood will be required at our hand. The liturgy of St. Gregory says, you have bound me with, every, with all the remedies that lead to life. He has given me every single tool so that I can excel in the spiritual life and reach the heights of holiness. So what's the problem? Who stands in the way? I'm the one who stands in the way. I'm the one who stands in the way of people coming to God. Because of the lack of purity in my life. Because I decide that what I want comes before what he wants. And I decide that my happiness is more important than, what, than, than God's happiness. And I've put myself before others. This is what stands in the way of people coming to Christ. For you have brought unto God your Son many people through your purity. Believe me, you do not need to be the sermon giver. You, not, you do not need to give topics. We need to start living holy lives. And to be honest, we need to raise the bar. And we need to raise the standard of where we want to be. We need to stop looking at the Pope Kiroloses of the world as an unattainable target. We need to stop looking at holiness as some, at, as some distant, impossible dream. I'm sorry, I refuse. We need to stop putting the responsibility of holiness on the monks and nuns in the, in the desert. Wrong. I refuse. I refuse to believe that holiness was reserved for some people. That's untrue. I refuse to believe that those who can consecrate their minds and who, who have 
given over every thought to Christ, it's only the monks and nuns who live, who live in, the, in the desert. That's wrong. And I refuse to believe it. We need to, to, to take a stand and we need to be more aggressive in our spiritual life. And please, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm really not telling this to you guys. This is... I can't tell you with what heart I'm telling you this. Because it's tough. And every night, we need to go back home, close the door, face Christ, and lay down before Him our will to be pure while we are not pure. And I need to lay before Him my desire to be holiness while I am not holy. And my desire to be honest and loyal when I'm not. And my desire to be faithful while I'm not. But we need to be aggressive. The, Christ says, and from the days of John the Baptist even until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. It means that there is no option. Purity, this bringing people to God through purity, it's not an option. Like we said earlier, giving up is not an option. It's, it's not in the vocabulary of the Christian. If I fall, do not rejoice over me, my enemy, for though I fall, I will arise. And the righteous man falls seven times a day and rises up. Welcome to the struggle. And even one of the other Theotokias, it says, Christ, the founder of the true struggle. What is the beauty of the Christian struggle? Is that I'm not struggling for a God. I'm struggling with God. What makes persecution and what makes, like, what makes all of our struggles, what makes them beautiful and what makes them lovely? Is that my God for whom I'm struggling is not just sitting on some high throne watching me squirm. He is with me and He is struggling with me. Therefore, my struggle is sanctified because of His. My trying and my weak prayer is sanctified by His prayer. My prayer is worth the world because Christ prayed. The ark overlaid round about with gold that was made with wood that would not decay points us to eternal life and to have that eternal mindset and to always weigh every aspect of our lives on the scale of eternity. And through that, believe you me, our, our life decisions, both small and great, will change. You too, O Mary, are clothed with the glory of the divinity within and without. We want to set the bar higher and we want to consecrate every thought and every breath to God. Every intention, every desire, every dream, every whatever, Christ must take possession. I want Him to take this and do whatever He wants everything not leave one thing 
that is desiring anything else. Together, let's have this goal. And once we strive, as we strive towards that, we will bring many people to God through purity. And please remember me in your prayers. Um, Can I ask a the economy here, it's, it's talking about God's plan. And like his big plan. So God's plan for salvation from the beginning of time. It's called in like theological terms, it's, theological terms, it's called the, the economy. So this is why it's capitalized. Because it's his like capital P plan. Do you explain why it's called the economy? Sorry? Do you want to explain why it's called the economy? No, go ahead. Does anybody know why it's called the economy? Like when we say the economy of God, it's like saying the will of God, but it's a specific will. Um, some of you have asked me before the question, can we change the will of God? And I've spoken to you about the good will of God and the permissive will of God. If you know what I'm talking about, fine. If you don't, don't worry. It's a different question. We can address it at a different time or later or in the break or whatever, right? So the good will of God is the economy of God. The good will of God is God's will for the world if everybody did exactly what God always wanted us to do. Now, the reason that this world is not perfect is because the good will of God is not always done, but sometimes our free will differs from the good will of God. Sometimes it's a bit of an understatement, right? That good will of God is called the economy. Why is it called the economy? Why do we say that one of the, one of the unchangeable characters of God is his economy? Why? Because it's just... When, when, when I say, you know, uh, like I wanted to go to this fancy restaurant for dinner, but then Mina wanted to go to McDonald's because Mina is economical. What does that mean, right? It means he's cheap, right? He isn't. He isn't. Mina's very generous, right? But it means, what's, what does economical mean? Economical means it's the thrifty, it's the, it's the shortest distance from point A to point B. It doesn't wait, there's no waste, right? the most efficient or, or whatever, right? So God's economy is the perfect will of God that is the shortest distance from point A to point B. What is point B? What is the destination? Is our perfect and uninterrupted, endless union with God. Communion, like what are we aiming for in this? Like what is the meaning of life? You know, the meaning of life, sorry, I'm gonna like tell you in one said one word, the meaning of life is communion. That's what we're after, right? Not communion at the altar table. That is, that is sacramental. That is the tip of the iceberg, right? That you can see. What's the iceberg underneath that you can't see? Is endless, perfect, eternal union with God. That's what we're after. The economy of God is the shortest distance between the shortest way to reach that. What is... What is the new economy of God after the fall? Like what is the new perfect will of God, like cheapest, easiest, fastest way to get us back in communion with God after the fall? Christ, His incarnation, the whole life of Christ, His, his annunciation, His incarnation, 
His death on the cross, His resurrection. That is the most economical way. Like there were other ways, but they would have cost more. Cost who more? Cost us more. So the perfect will of God has you and me at the top. Like God says it's cheap, the cheapest way for me to reestablish this communion is for me to sacrifice my only begotten son. That's, that's the economy of God. Make sense? So in the context here, where, where was it? A holy humanity begotten without seed, coessential with us, according according to the economy, according to the God's like bet leanest divine plan. Yes, Any other questions or comments? Sorry, I was supposed to do two, three, and four, but manish. <laughs> Got carried away with two. Yeah. <laughs> so glory be to God for heaven and earth.